can open with me this morning to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, and we're going to make our way this morning from Genesis 8, verse 20, all the way through Genesis 9, verses, uh, verse 17. It seems to happen over and over again as we make our way systematically through books, first Mark and now Genesis, that whatever text the Lord brings before us on a Sunday morning just perfectly seems to intersect and meet precisely where we are as a church and precisely what's going on in the world. And I, I, I felt that was especially true this week uh, with everything that's going on in the news and and the Roe decision and all of the fallout and reaction to that. Miranda and I were discussing this week and, and sort of reading the various articles and reactions that were, were coming out. Um, when I was speaking with people, arguing with people on the, the abortion issue maybe 10 years or so ago, um, it seemed like the major pro-abortion argument centered around the question of whether the baby in the womb actually was a human life. And most people I was encountering were arguing, it's not really a human life, therefore abortion is not murder. Um, and not, not everyone has gone to this extreme, but some of the rhetoric has escalated to the point that this one article Miranda and I happened across this week that was arguing basically, yes, a baby in a womb is a human life, but we should be able to kill it anyways, and here's why. Um, and, and this is where some of the rhetoric has gone, and this was shocking to me, surprising. Um, but in some ways, in terms of worldview thinking, it, it shouldn't be surprising uh, because we live in a culture and in a society which has gradually and seemingly inevitably left behind the moorings of the Word of God and of what God has said. And we're now wandering on the sea of moral relativism. And in a society where there's no moral absolutes, where we can do what's good in our own eyes, Who's to say what a human life is and isn't? And who's to say what we should do with a, a human life, right? If what's right is what we want to do, then we can do whatever we want. And this is just, just another one of those issues where, come back to this again and again, it's either Christ or chaos. We either will be grounded in the word of God or things will go really squirrely really fast. Our passage this week covers God's covenant with Noah. God's covenant with Noah, and with Noah, actually, his covenant with all creation, with the whole earth, human beings, and, and as we'll see, actually the animals too. And what I want us to see in this passage this morning is that in his covenant with Noah, and actually with all of us, God has graciously commanded and promised Life. Life. Our God 
is a God who loves life. He invented it. And here in this covenant with Noah and with us, we're going to see that he both graciously commands and promises life. And my, my goal for us this morning is that before we leave, that we would have hearts full of thankfulness to God for the gift of life and hearts committed to protecting and nurturing life. That's my goal. That's our text. I'd like to read it together. Genesis 8, beginning in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth continues, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you and as we come to your word this morning, we're desperate to hear from you. We're not interested in hearing from human beings. 
We're not interested in hearing idle speculation. We're interested in hearing the very words of God. And so we ask, Father, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. That the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in his covenant with Noah, here's our big idea if you want to write it down. In his covenant with Noah, God has graciously commanded and promised life. So this is a covenant that God's making with Noah. If you think about a covenant, that's an agreement. The most common covenant we run into is the covenant of marriage. Right? It's a covenant relationship. I'm actually um, doing a marriage this afternoon uh, down in Camden. And uh, in a marriage covenant, what, what do you do when you come to the ceremony? You make vows, right? You make promises with, with one another. And you, usually you've got two parties in the covenant and you make covenant promises to each other. You say, this is how I'm going to behave in the covenant, and this is how I'm going to behave in the covenant, and we're going to do it together, right? And uh, marriage promises, we understand that, right? This is how I'm going to behave, this is how you're going to behave, and we're going to bank on that. We're going to signify it with a ring. Amen. Yeah. So, so this is a different sort of covenant because this is not a covenant between human beings, right? This is a covenant between God and, as we'll see, actually the whole earth, God and all living creatures. Um, and there's sort of two parts to this covenant arrangement. We have the promises that God makes towards humanity on the one hand, and we have the commands that God gives to humanity on the other hand. He says, this is how I want you to behave from here on out, Noah and all of your descendants. This is what I want you to do and this is what I'm going to do for you, okay? So we'll sort of look at those two, those two parts, God's commands and then God's promises to Noah and his descendants. So let's start with the commands. We pick up in actually uh, Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is the first command God gives to Noah and to his kids. And this should sound familiar to you if you've been here with us through Genesis or if you've ever read Genesis before. This is hearkening back all the way to Genesis 1. And who did God speak these words to originally? Adam and Eve, right? The first human beings. He sets Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, this is what I want you to do. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, here's this paradise, this beautiful new earth, make something of it. Have kids, build homes, build communities, make something beautiful of this earth. And then, of course, Adam and Eve fell into sin. There's all sorts of fallout from that, all the way to the point of the flood, God wiping the earth clean, basically, and starting fresh with Noah, but now he's starting again, and he repeats these words that he'd said in the beginning. Right? This is new creation language. He's saying, all right, Noah, now you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he says it again in verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. What God's doing here is he's bookending his commands to Noah. 
in verses, verse 1 and verse 7, and then between it is the rest of the commands that he gives to Noah. So he's bookending his commands to Noah. This is what I want you to do. Be fruitful and multiply. This is, this is core to what it means to be human. Uh, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, this is what I want you to do. This is your task fruitfulness, right? fruit bearing, have, have kids and make something of this earth. Now, of course, we, we understand, um, and we, should we, should, we can make all kinds of caveats here, and we, sh we should. Um, you don't have to have children to be obedient to God, okay? This command to be fruitful and multiply, it's to all of humanity, but we know uh, from a number of places in God's word. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 outlines that some Christians in the New Covenant are called to a life of cel celibacy, a life of singleness, and this, this is good and it's right. Um, and we know that, that for some couples, God does not give the gift of children. Uh, there's a number of examples of this in, in Scripture of God withholding um, children from, from couples, and that's a very difficult thing to, to wrestle with. And much more could be said on, on this topic. Um, but we trust that, that God is good and that he's kind, right? And that even in, the, in that very difficult situation that God is working for, for our good. With those caveats, we come back to the clear command of God. That as a, a general characteristic of what human life is supposed to be, is fruitful multiplication. Um, men and women building homes, building families, building communities, making something wonderful of this world. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's all kinds of ways in which uh, this command is under attack in our, in our day. As Christians, as Christian people, our, our lives and the, the way we approach all of life should be as pro-fruitful people, right? We want to be builders, builders of families, builders of homes, builders of communities. Um, and, and in our culture today, there's, there's movements actually working to, to undercut the very foundations of this pro-fruitfulness that, that God is advocating here in the Noahic Covenant. Um, and um, this, of course, comes out in the, um, the LGBTQ movement. Um, homosexual relationships are, by definition, unfruitful. Okay? This, is, this is part of why this is a perversion of human sexuality. Um, is because God's design for human sexuality is, is fruitfulness. We see that transgenderism is another distortion and perversion of this, this call to fruitfulness. Um, you can go out and find stories. I've run across a couple in the last few months of people who've um, become transgender and who for 10 or 15 years have transitioned and then have regretted their choice and have tried to go back. And the, the brutal reality of, of, of a transition 
um, if you take it all the way to its conclusion, including hormone treatment and surgery, um, is, is that it makes people unfruitful. I, I read this heart-wrenching story even this week of this, this woman, young woman who transitioned as a, as a young girl, 10 or 15 years later, goes back to considering herself a woman. She'll never be able to have kids. She'll never be able to breastfeed. Um, she, there are m movements in our culture which fundamentally undercut the call of God to fruitfulness. And I say all this not so we'll be Christians who are characterized by what we're against, but that so we would see clearly what's going on in the culture and so that we'd be able to orient ourselves to be pro-fruitfulness, pro-life in the, in the widest possible sense of that term, that we would love what it means to be human. So part of God's command here is, is multiplication. He's advocating fruitfulness. And the, the other side of the command here um, has to do with um, prohibiting, sort of putting up walls around um, attacks on life. So in verse 2, um, the Lord lays out that the, the fear of humanity is going to be on the animals now. He gives animals to Noah for Noah and his family and to us. For food, apparently before this, um, Adam and Eve and their descendants were not carnivores; you know, they're vegetarians. Um, and now the animals are being given to humanity for food. So, amen for steaks and burgers. Um, <laughs> one prohibition is made, however, in verse four: "But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood." Which is interesting. So don't eat blood because we're told. The blood is the life of an animal. Don't eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And this just makes logical sense, right? When you want to know if someone's alive, what do you do? You check their pulse, their blood flow. Um, we know that if someone loses too much blood, what happens? They, they die. There's a sense in which the blood is the life of a person. And God is, is ruling blood off limits for eating here. Verse 5, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. What God's doing in fencing off blood is he's raising up and elevating the dignity of life. So this is a serious thing to take someone's life. As a way of honoring that, you don't eat the blood, the life of an animal. And then he goes on and he says, and for you, he's talking to humanity now, for your lifeblood, verse 5, I will require a reckoning. Now, this, is a, this is a new commandment. This is a new institution here. You remember a couple chapters ago, there was the first murder, right? Cain killed Abel out of jealousy and out of anger. And what did God do to Cain? He put a mark on him as a, as, a, as, a, as a merciful thing, right? As this gracious thing to protect him. He protects Cain. Um, and Cain goes on and he, 
he has children, they have children, they have children. And within a few generations, you get Lamech. And remember, Lamech's doing multiplication on murder, right? He's saying, well, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then my revenge is 77-fold, right? If Cain was a murderer, how much more I'm, I'm going to be? Um, and so what God does here is he, he institutes a new sort of uh, justice, where he says, if, if someone's going to take someone else's life, then their own life will be forfeit. And this is God's institution of this. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Notice the rationale there. God made man in his own image. In other words, human life possesses such dignity, such value, because human beings are made in the image of God in this unique place in creation, that because of this fact, we, we daren't even consider taking a human life. And if someone does take a human life, this is such a serious thing that their own life will be forfeit. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. This is God's gracious way of putting up guardrails for us. What we see in the chapters preceding this up to the flood is that on our own, we tend to multiply our sin and we we end up spiraling out of control very fast, this snowball effect of sin. And so what God is doing here is he's instituting the system of justice. And what's fascinating is that he doesn't say, I'm going to strike down anyone who commits murder. He actually entrusts this task of justice and of governance to human beings. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. He's actually entrusting this task of, of executing justice to the human community. And here's the first hint we have in Scripture of the idea of any kind of human government. Um, now, some of us can be very suspicious of government and, and uh, rightly so in some ways because every human government is filled with sinners. Um, but you can't be a Christian anarchist because government is God's idea. And we can debate over what government should look like. Um, but we see here in the Noahic Covenant, God introducing the idea that every society, every group of human beings needs to have some way of executing justice. There needs to be some magistrate, there needs to be some judge, there needs to be some king, some congress, some something which is able to determine this person has committed a murder, they need to be punished, right? And to be able to execute that judgment. And so human government is God's idea. It's a way of curbing sin. And we see this play out um, in more and less successful ways in more and less successfully just societies. Right? Um, in societies like ours, um, in countries and in cultures, where there is a relatively consistent system of justice, um, you see relatively consistently that crime and murder and these things go down. Right? And you see relatively consistently in nations, in countries, in cultures where injustice is the norm, that crime goes unpunished and that people are incentivized all the more to, to sin. And so human government, though plagued by sin is God's idea. It's a good thing. 
And so here in God's commands in verses one through seven, God both sort of positively and negatively um, commands and commands life. He says, be fruitful, multiply, be fruitful people, be building people, be the kind of people who love children and babies and families and building cultures and communities, be building people, fruitful people, and then also be the kind of people who are willing to build societies that will put up guardrails to protect life because human life is actually valuable. It's actually worth protecting. It's worth putting up walls to keep human life safe. And there's all kinds of implications to that commandment. Um, But in light of recent events, of course, one significant implication is that we would be pro-life specifically with regard to life in the womb and that we would continue to work for for change in our society, the, the one that's ours, the one that we have some kind of leverage over, that we would seek to protect life even in the womb. Okay. In his covenant with Noah and with all of us, God both graciously commands and graciously promises life. We've talked about the commands. Now let's talk about the promises. It's worth noting here that God's promises in this covenant are not conditional. There are some covenants in Scripture where we encounter God making promises that he makes conditional on the actions of his people. He says, if you do this, I will then bless you and do this and such. That's a conditional covenant. We have contracts like that, right? If you follow through on your end of the bargain, then I'll follow through on my end of the bargain. This is not one of those covenants. God gives Noah commands. He says, this is what you're to do. And then he makes promises, but the promises are not conditional. He makes the promises absolutely. They're not conditional on Noah's obedience. And what are these promises that God makes? Verse 20 of Genesis chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That's the promise God makes. And then once we get to verse 8, verses 8 through 17, God puts covenantally binding language on this promise. He says, I'm binding myself to this. I'm tying myself to the mast on this. I'm not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. I'm not going to do it. There's two sides of this promise. He says, on the one hand, I'm not going to destroy the earth with a flood again. And then on the positive side, I'm going to uphold life in the earth. Verse 22 of chapter 8. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And this should be a great comfort to us. The flood, which we've spoken about the last couple of weeks, raises a couple of key questions for us. First of all, as to the extent of human sin, because human sin got real bad before the flood. It was like just tearing each other apart. And 
one question is, how, are we, how, is God, how could we guard against those extremes? We've answered that with God's commands, that there's actually some guardrails we can put up in human society. But the other, maybe more pressing question that the flood raises for us is, given the extent of our sin, given the extent to which the people of the world go and do what is right in their own eyes, what's to keep God from flooding the world next week? Right? What's, what's to keep this pattern from recurring over and over and over again? Right? Maybe you wonder, maybe that's in Noah's mind. Right? He's like, all right, I'll be fruitful and multiply, but is there going to be another one of these? And in order to assuage that fear, God makes these promises. He makes these promises. I'm not going to flood the earth again. Not only am I not going to flood the earth again, I'm going to uphold these rhythms of life. It's almost poetic, 822, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That these regular rhythms of life, right, of the the first signs of spring and the first snowflakes in the winter, right? The, the leaves turning in the fall with regularity, right? Every fall they turn, and it's always the maples first. And then yeah. these rhythms, these regular rhythms of nature should remind us of God's constant provision uh, for us. The world doesn't hold itself together by itself. God upholds the world by his gracious providence and by his kind promises. And so these regular rhythms of creation, these regular rhythms, springtime harvest, mud season, black fly season, should remind us of God's faithfulness, of his kindness to us, of this promise which he's still keeping, which he made to Noah and to us, right? It's not just to Noah, it's to his descendants, his offspring, verse nine, and with every living creature, In verse 15, he specifies uh, that God specifies that he's making this creature, this uh, covenant with every living creature of all flesh. Um, this covenant's with all of us. And it's a kind covenant. It's easy to take advantage of God's kindness, of his graciousness. Some people have looked around at the regularity with which the universe holds together and, and figure, well, the universe must be all there is. In a way, it's like committing a grievous sin one day and then waking up the next morning and looking around, and it's like, well, the sun still rises. I'm still here. This is presuming upon the grace of God. The reason there hasn't been another flood, the reason any of us are not struck down in our sins any day is the kindness and the graciousness of God. It's that God is patient with us, not willing that any should perish. It's that God has been very kind to us in, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, causing the sun to rise on the, the, um, uh, the wicked and the righteous and causing the rain to fall both on the just and on the unjust. This is what theologians call common grace. Common grace that God blesses in common all the people of the world, all the animals of the world, right, with these regular patterns of springtime of harvest and harvest, of rain and sun. These are the regular patterns of creation. 
So that's the promise God makes, and he makes it to us and to all creation, and then he gives a sign. Right? When you get married, you get a ring, and when God made this covenant with the earth, he hung up his bow. The picture here is of God's war bow, and he hangs it up in the sky, I'm not going to make war on the earth any longer. He hangs up his bow, and notice where it's pointed. Up. Not down, threatening the earth, but up. In a way, actually, um, and it's not specified here in the passage, um, but s- certain uh, interpreters have, have read it this way, and I think this holds weight, that in a way he's actually threatening himself. In uh, ancient covenants, treaties that you'd make, you'd make it on pains of death. Right? You make this, this covenant with your neighbor or, or a neighboring kingdom, and you say, we're going to keep this covenant on, on my life, right? And if I don't keep my covenant, my life, this covenant, my life is forfeit, right? And so here, I think what we have is the everlasting God saying, I'm going to keep this promise on pains of my life, and God doesn't die, God's going to keep this promise. I've always thought of the rainbow as being a reminder to us, but what's interesting here is that's not what God says. He doesn't say it's supposed to be a reminder to us. He says it's supposed to be, in a sense, a reminder to himself. Verse 14, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. I will remember my covenant. This, this doesn't imply that, that God's forgetful and he needed a sticky note to let himself know not to flood the earth again. That's not the kind of remembering that's going on here. Think again in terms of marriage. Um, a man who's unfaithful to his wife likely hasn't forgotten that he's married. Not cognitively, right? But in a real sense, he's forgotten his covenant vows. He has not remembered the covenant. Right? He remembers it in one sense, but not in another. I think that's the kind of remembering that's being referred to here. That God's saying, when I see the bow, I'm going to remember it. I'm going to keep my covenant effectually. It's not, it's not that God's going to forget his covenant cognitively. It's that he's promised never to forget his covenant in his actions. Right? He's going to keep covenant with his people. I will remember my covenant. And so when we see the rainbow... It's sort of a second-hand reminder. When we see a rainbow in the clouds, it's not just that we remember God's covenant. We remember that God is remembering his covenant. When we see the rainbow in in the clouds, we're reminded God is faithful. And when I see the rainbow, I know and I remember that God is remembering his covenant. And when we see the rainbow, we're reminded that actually everything we have is a gift from God every day, every breath, every change of the seasons, every new week, every new month, right? Every bite of food we eat, every taste of an apple, it's all the gift of God. We don't deserve any of it, but he's given it to us all in his common grace. God, here in this covenant, both commands and promises life. He lays out for Noah and his descendants, this is how you're to be pro-life, pro-fruitfulness, 
be fruitful, multiply, protect the vulnerable, protect against murder and against infringement on the image of God. And on the other hand, God's saying, and this is how I'm going to promise you, I'm promising life. I'm promising that I'm going to sustain the seasons and sustain your life in this world. It's an amazing thing, and it's a promise that we can bank on every day. And it's a promise that comes on the heels of sacrifice. And this is where I want to close, because this idea of sacrifice just keeps coming up as we're moving through Genesis. Before all these words are exchanged, before anything happens, what's the first thing that happens? Noah makes a sacrifice. The first thing he does when he gets out of the boat, verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Remember we read Noah had made these preparations. God told him, take extra of the clean animals and of the birds. You're going to need them. Here's where he needs them. He's making a sacrifice to God. Sacrifice has significance in a couple of ways, and we've talked about this before. But first of all, a sacrifice shows that you value God. The, the literal act of sacrifice says, I'm willing to sacrifice something because I actually think you're more valuable than this thing. Okay. But sacrifice is quite a lot deeper than that. The deeper meaning of sacrifice, as we see it throughout Scripture, is that a sacrifice is made in worship of God because someone has to die for sins. Someone has to die for sins. You understand from what Paul writes in Romans that the wages of sin is death. We understand from the early chapters of Genesis what God said if Adam and Eve were to sin. In the day that you eat of the apple, you will surely die. Right? This is the promise of God. The, the wages of sin is death. What we get for cutting ourselves off from the author of life is death. And so what sacrifices testify to throughout the whole of the Old Testament is God, if I'm going to be in relationship with you, someone has to die for my sins. If I'm going to live, something has to die in my place. Right? That's what every sacrificed ram, sacrificed bull speaks, proclaims even to us today. Someone has to die for sins. And we understand from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that actually all of those Old Testament sacrifices, including this one that Noah that Noah made here right on the heels of the flood, it's all pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice, actually the only sacrifice that can effectual, effectually cleanse from sin, and that's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That ultimately Jesus is the one we need to die for our sins, to die in our place. We see that Jesus is for life in the commands he gives to Noah. We see that Jesus, that God is for life in the covenant that he makes with Noah. But the ultimate sign that God loves humanity and wants people to live is Jesus Christ who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Amen. And he said too, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. God has promised us life in this earth for every day that he gives us, the continuance of the cycles and the seasons of the earth until the earth comes to an end. 
but all of our lives on this earth have an ending point. We are finite. And while we thank God for life in this life, we must also consider the question, do we have hope for life in the next? Do we have hope for life eternal? Have we come to know the one who can give us eternal life, who can save us from the death we deserve and bring us into eternal reconciliation and life with God? And the shadows of that Savior and of that Messiah are rippling here in the fire under, underneath the altar as Noah builds that altar after the flood. In his covenant with Noah, God has both graciously commanded and promised life. And may we be people who treasure life like God does, that we would be fruitful people, that we would work to protect life, that we would be grateful day by day for the life he has given us, for the breath in our lungs, for the days and the seasons and the years, and that we would trust in Christ for life and life eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, not only in making a covenant with Noah, but in making a new covenant in the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And we trust, Lord, that it's in that covenant that we are saved. I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to, to see your heart for life, that we would be anxious to be fruitful people, building families and homes and communities to your glory, that we would work in our society, in our communities, to, in what ways that we're able to, to fight for uh, life and the right to life, especially for the most vulnerable. We pray, too, that you would make us grateful, Heavenly Father, for each day that you'd give us, that the rainbow would be a reminder of your kindness and of your love towards us, and that your kindness would in turn lead us to repentance, to see our sin, to see the reality of the threat of death, and in the face of that threat, in the face of our sin, to look to the light of a Savior, a perfect sacrifice, the resurrection, and the life. It's in that hope, and it's in that name we, that, that we pray. Amen.